Hey, it's your pal Mike Shea from Sly Flourish. Today, I am going to be talking about chapters four and five from the hardback adventure Descent into Avernus. Uh, I finished the adventure last night, so I'm actually also going to offer my top tips for running this adventure overall, and I'm going to give my overall summary about how I feel about this adventure and my, my general thoughts now that I've completed the whole thing. So I put together some notes for today, and right up front, I want to talk about, I want to offer my best tips. I don't want to waste any time. Right off the bat, if you just want, if I only have five minutes to talk to you, if you're only listening to the beginning of this, of this show, I want to offer my top tips. Uh, number one, the adventure as written has a problem understanding its theme. So it's important for us, if we're running this adventure, to understand the kind of theme we want to have for this adventure. Uh, an example is, one theme can be redemption. Uh, are you there to save Elturel? Are you there to redeem Zariel from falling uh, under the thumb of Asmodeus and becoming a, an archdevil? Uh, another theme is descent. Are you falling into darkness? Are you falling into hell? The adventure, like, are you making dark choices for a greater good, but the dark choices start to take you over, right? That is another theme. Are you making deals with the devil? So... The adventure doesn't really know exactly which theme it wants to do. And the motivation for the characters is kind of tied to these themes and it can get wobbly. So the first thing you want to do is understand the theme. Uh, the theme that I ran was redemption. I wanted big damn heroes that want to save Elturel and that want to uh, save Zariel from her dark fate. So it was easy for me to wire the rest of it for the most part. There was one dirty trick that I had to get to, which I'll get to in a minute. So understand the theme. Two, make sure your players are good with that theme. If you are running it as a dark campaign with hard decisions and with like the descent into, you know, descent into darkness and that their character, that, you know, the souls of their characters are at risk, you want to make sure your players are on board. This probably even goes before a session zero. It's probably worth like a session negative one where you get together and just say, hey, I'm thinking of running this adventure. It has these themes. What do you guys think? And then in your session zero, once the theme has been agreed upon by all your players, then you can um, uh, tighten up that theme and make sure that the rest of the adventure fits that theme. As I mentioned, I picked the theme of redemption. So I'm going to be talking about the redemption theme uh, for the, the whole rest of this video. Uh, the third tip is tie the characters to Elturel, the Hellriders, and Rhea Mantelmorn. The easiest way to do this is by running the adventure Fall of Elturel. I have a whole video just on running Fall of Elturel. Uh, this is an adventure written by Anthony Joyce and Justice Armand. It's available for five bucks on the DMs Guild, and it's a much better introduction to Descent into Avernus than the book has on its own. I highly recommend it. One important thing that it does is it levels the characters up to like level two before they even start getting involved in, in the stuff in Baldur's Gate, which can be really hard if they're lower level. Like almost every one of the hardback and almost every adventure that Wizards has put out recently, it is really hard on first level characters. So you want to get your characters up to second or third level before they really start doing anything major. I'd probably have them at third level by the time they go into the Dungeon of the Dead 3. So Fall of Elturel is a great way to add some stuff in the beginning, get them leveled up, and tie them to Elturel, the Hellriders, and Rhea Mantelmorn. Really important. Um, the other big tip is to build your own path through Chapter 3. Chapter 3 is the real big bulk of this adventure. I have a whole video where we just talk about Chapter 3. Uh, the main thing is you're going to want to build your own path. So instead of saying, like, I either follow the path of demons or the path of devils, what you can do is you, there are 24 locations in Chapter 3. You can read those locations and decide which of those sound cool to you, which of them do you want to drop in, and then build your own path of what kind of quest takes them there. Uh, I built a path called the Path of the Hellriders, in which the characters are following the various fallen Hellriders, the general, Zariel's generals, and learning about which ones... Um, 
steered away from Zariel when she had her fall, which ones joined her when she fell from grace, which ones know where the sword is, and which ones know where the ones who know where the sword is are. So that way, um, there was a whole different set of paths. But you can also, some other example paths are the path of Bell. How can you ally with Bell, the former leader of Avernus, and how can you help get him to the throne while at the same time saving Elturel and deposing Zariel? Uh, another path is the path of Tiamat. Can you work with um, Archon the Cruel and his group and learn how to release Tiamat? And Tiamat can break the chains, depose Zariel, and take over for Avernus. Those are other paths that you can kind of seed out there if you want. So pick, design your own path is really the, the tip I want to have. And that is where the biggest amount of work is going to be required in order to wrangle this adventure into something that's really that, that will really be great for your group. Uh, the next one is let the characters use demon ichor to fuel the infernal war machines. This gets around the idea that you are permanently destroying a soul in order to move a vehicle a few miles. Uh, it, again, if you're doing the descent into darkness, if you're you know the fall into darkness um, side of this, maybe burning souls up is okay. But if you're doing the redemption arc, the idea that your big damn heroes are going to permanently destroy souls to fuel a vehicle doesn't work. But no one cares about demons and squeezing demons for their juicy, juicy ichor to fuel your vehicle. That's perfectly fine. So just add that idea that you can fuel a hell, you can fuel a war machine by channeling demon ichor. And then they have to go hunt big demons in order to get their juicy, juicy ichor and put it inside of the vehicle so they can drive it around. Um, the other one is, uh, so for chapter four, chapter four has, there's, there's in all, all areas of D&D, really, and all areas of descent and all these, there's, there's a couple of dials that you want to keep in mind. Um, but there's two, there's two dials that you want to have for chapter four. One is a gore dial, and we're going to talk about this when I talk about chapter four. The other one is a pacing dial. And you want to make sure you have the right amount of gore and pacing to match what your group is looking for. Uh, for pacing, you want to make sure to have hard fights and easy fights and hard fights and easy fights. Or you know, good things and bad things and good things and bad things. You want to oscillate your beats to make sure that the game is fun and interesting. If you do too much negative beats, it's really going to hurt. So make sure to watch your beats. But the other one is there's a lot of potential for really, really gory stuff. And your group may not be interested in this. So if your group is really not into like the drippy, drippy, drippy gore, turn the gore dial down and, and you can do that. That's particularly for chapter four. Uh, and the pacing in chapter four, another big thing in chapter four is how many, and we're going to talk about this, how many of the uh, events in the dream sequence do you run? Do you want to run all seven or do you want to run just a couple? Uh, and then finally, know where the adventure is headed, know what conclusion is there, and give the players what they want. You're, when you're at the end of the campaign, it is not your job to jog left and make it crazy and like ruin the can. You don't want to ruin the campaign. If your players have, an, have something they definitely want to do, like saving Zario and saving Elturel, get them there, right? Ha make a fun conclusion to this adventure, particularly if you're doing the redemption angle, right? With the redemption angle, you want redemption at the end of the campaign. If you're doing Fall into Darkness, maybe things getting way worse than what they thought might be fine, right? And if your group is cool with that idea and they want a really dark adventure and they've been falling from grace, you know, that might be a fine path to go. That's not the path I wanted to take. So those are my number, those are my top tips, not quite five minutes, pretty close to five minutes. Uh, those are my top tips for running this adventure overall. But I also want to talk specifically about chapter four and chapter five. Uh, I have done other videos talking about running Fall of El Terrell, running chapters and, and the other chapters in this book. So if you want to see uh, depth, you know, more in-depth videos, uh, take a look at the other videos in which I cover uh, the other chapters of Descent and Avernus. I'm grouping chapter four and five together because chapter five is such a weird chapter and it 
chapter five for me was one session long. It was really quick. Uh, it can be longer and there's a lot going on in that chapter, but I, I figure I, I, I don't want to do a whole separate video just talking about chapter five. Cause for me it's one session long chapter four is a bit meatier. So I'm coming and combining all this together into one. So chapter four, uh, sets off in the bleeding Citadel. And there's really two big parts of this. Uh, there's the scab, which is, well, there's probably three parts getting, getting to, uh, the bleeding citadel is one part. How do you get from wherever they can see it to, to, to actually getting to the place? Then the scab, which are all of the tunnels that are beneath uh, the bleeding citadel that get you to the doors. Uh, and then there's the citadel itself, which really is just one big room, but leads to the dream sequences uh, that are set in um, Idle Glen. So you want to run, you, you want to know how to run the Idle Glen scene. So those are the, those are the big pieces. Uh, Luckily, much like the Elturel chapter and and even the Baldur's Gate chapter, if you run the Baldur's Gate chapter with Fall of Elturel in the beginning, uh, they can be it can be run pretty much as is. You don't you don't need to do a lot of work if you don't want to. Uh, but the two things I would do is I would I would keep a dial on the gore. So I one thing I did for this video um, and I've done for the previous videos is I had the opportunity to talk to one of the authors of the adventure, James Intercasso, and, and James wrote specifically this this chapter. Uh, so I was able to ask him what were his biggest tips for running chapter four as the guy who wrote it. And he gave me, he gave me these two, these two tips that I'm giving to you. Uh, one is that it could be a really gory chapter. When you go into the scab, you can describe and, and, uh, be careful. I'm about to get real gory here for a minute. It can be like this great big fleshy mound with these like burrowed holes in it. As I refer to it, it could be like a two session long colonoscopy, right? Where you're going through and it's pulsing and stuff's dripping down and yucky. Right. So you can make it really gory. You can also turn the dial the other way and don't talk so much about the pulsating things. And maybe it's just carved out of red rock. Right. Like maybe it's just, you know, it's it's really about how soft or how solid are the rock walls is really the gore part. You want to understand how your players are going to react to that. Some like the drippy, drippy gore. Uh, some want it to be a two session long colonoscopy. Others are like, I just, you know, I'm here for the redemption side and want that part of it. So describe how um, gory you want it is one dial. The other dial, which you can do in the scab too, is understand your pacing. If they had a bunch of hard fights, then give them, um, then, then give them a couple easy fights. Have a couple knolls that aren't really there to kill everybody. Uh, I had it where they got swallowed by the Krakatoic and inside the Krakatoic was a knoll who didn't, didn't want to get vomited out. And they had a, you know, the, 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 the knoll told him about what the knolls had been doing there. Cause he's like, look, I didn't even really, I, I didn't even want to be here this day. Right. I wasn't even supposed to be here today. And, uh, it's a fun NPC interaction to have sort of, uh, um, you know, Jonas and the whale, you know, a, a knoll that's inside the belly of a Krakatoic that you can, if you get swallowed by the Krakatoic, you can meet the knoll and the knoll tells you stuff and then you get vomited back out and you know all this new information. So it's a fun kind of thing you can do. Um, so pacing, right? A good beats, upward beats, downward beats, upward beats, downward beats. Uh, the whole thing with the, uh, hag is a nice potential NPC interaction. My group skipped it. So we didn't, we didn't actually see it, but the hag inside that area looks like it could be fun too. So that's one element of pacing. Then they get to the door, they get into the door and now is when all of your secrets and clues are dumped on them as they are involved in the dream sequences of Idle Glen. Uh, Idle Glen is made up of seven potential encounters. Uh, 
I knew immediately that I didn't want to run all of these encounters. And when I talked to James, he confirmed that like run as many of them as you think you want to and you think your group will be up for. But the tricky bit is because they're dream sequences, they don't feel real. And everyone feels like I want to get back to Avernus and, and make progress in the story. Learning stuff isn't enough. So I broke it down to three encounters instead of instead of seven. And the three encounters were they fought like, 20 or 30 gnolls all at once, a giant pile of gnolls, which is like fireballing them and killing them all really quickly. And then they fought a hard group of um, gnoll, uh, fang of Yinagus and a, and a flind. That was a nice hard fight. And then Yinagu himself shows up and they start fighting Yinagu. Now, if the characters are like 10th level, they can kind of hold their own against Yinagu. Because one thing about the demon prince uh, stat blocks is they're really not that terribly hard. Uh, so you can run... Uh, Yinigu as is. Uh, and then when things get to be hard, that's when Zariel, the, the good good Zariel shows up, right? She shows up, her generals show up. She's riding Lulu, who's a giant war mammoth, which is really great, um, and comes in. What I did is that Zariel, Z Zariel did not go and kill Yinigu. Zariel killed all of the other gnolls that were watching the fight. And Zariel also buffed the characters, like gave them a full heal and gave them like advantage on all attacks and give them like buff them so they can kill Yinigu. The advantage of that is there isn't this, de this, this deus ex machina. There isn't this God in the machine where, oh, sorry, you're too weak to beat Yinigu, but here's this NPC who's going to come and save the day for you and kill Yinigu. Give the characters a chance to kill Yinigu. And a way to do that is give them full, essentially, you might even like give them a full rest in the middle of the battle, right? All of a sudden, all their energy comes back, all their spells come back, all their health comes back, and now they're like, wow, we're ready. And then they have advantage on all attacks, and that way they can beat Yinigu. Um, and then they defeat Yinigu, and then Yinigu, I, this isn't really in the book, and it really helps. If Yinigu says, hey, you know, says like, you're never gonna win. Tell Zariel this, right? You're never gonna win. There are infinite demons coming. You're gonna kill me here, that's fine. I actually, they killed Yinigu, but the the Flind was still alive. The Flind was badly wounded and, you know, like laughing at them. And the the Flind said, you're like, you're an idiot. Like Yinigu's back alive in the in the death delves, uh, in the death, death delves. Uh, there's infinite gnolls, there's infinite demons. We're gonna take over the universe eventually. You will never win right? You will never win. And that's when Zariel is like, he's right. You know, we have to do something more. We need to ride into Avernus. We need to take the fight into Avernus and defeat the demons there if we ever have a chance of keeping them out of the world. And that's when that, that starts her on a path. And that's when Lulu realizes that was the beginning of her path. She went down there. And then I threw in another dream sequence where they showed Zariel's transfer from angel to devil, how she gave a sword over. And what I did is I, I, I wired in a, a secret in here that's different than the book, which is that Zariel knew that she was going to give up her, um, her, her divine self to, uh, she knew that she was going to end up there. And she tricked Asmodeus by creating a, a fake sword. So she had a fake sword of Zariel. She gave the real so sword to uh, Yale her general who hid the sword in Avernus. So she gave Yale the real sword and she gave her fake sword to Asmodeus and said, as long as I do not hold this blade, I will serve you, right? And then, and, and, you know, so then Asmodeus is holding the blade. As long as you're holding the blade and as long as I am not, I am your servant. And he's like, great, all I have to do is stick this in a vault and, you, and you're my servant forever. But it wasn't the real sword. The real sword was out there. And she knew, she knows and Lulu knows and Yale knows that the sword can bring her back. 
But she knew she can't know that or Asmodeus would see it. So she drank from the river sticks to forget that part of it. Lulu drank from the river sticks to forget that part of it. And they said, hopefully somebody will find out and then I can be redeemed, right? So it was this very, very small chance that Lulu had like one little memory to try to bring back uh, Zariel from the brink. And Zariel left it there as like a, a fail safe, right? But she knew like it, it may never come back up again. So um, so that I revealed that during these final scenes in Idle Glen. I, 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 sh- I showed after they saw the fall, um, I, I showed the, um, after I showed the fall, I showed Zariel handing her fake sword over to Asmodeus and Yale taking the real sword and then burying it in the ground and creating the, um, uh, and creating the, the, the cyst, uh, you know, the, the bleeding citadel. So that was, uh, that was a, a change that I made, but it worked pretty well. The problem is like, that's not the best contract in the world. And the idea that Asmodeus can be tricked that way seems really far off, but you're like, well, it's an angel trick and a, a demon Lord. So maybe you know, maybe that can work. Um, and it worked fine for my group. My group was happy with it. Uh, so one other thing I changed in chapter four is instead of them seeing the bleeding citadel and just walking up and going and going into the tunnel, I surrounded it with hundreds of gnolls. I had armies of gnolls. So they had to figure out how do we get into the bleeding citadel and avoid these armies of gnolls who are like tearing at the outside and fighting off other devils that are nearby and stuff like that. And um, that was a nice addition. They actually had to climb across the chain in order to uh, in order to get there, and that worked out really well. Uh, the one mistake I made is I also put Yinagu out there. So Yinagu was kind of walking around the outside, ordering his troops to get in there because he knew I, I've seen that sword. I, I think the sword is in there, and I want it. Yinagu knew the sword was in there, but no one else did. And he's like, I want them to get in there, and get the sword. However, if you already have Yinagu inside the dream, having Yinagu outside doesn't really work. And then what do they do when they're leaving? Do they go and fight Yinagu? In my case, they had released Gargoth at that point. We'll get into Gargoth in a minute. They had released Gargoth and Gargoth went and killed Yinagu. But it was like, it was kind of a side thing that didn't need to be there. So I, 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 I put Yinagu there. I kind of wish I hadn't. It wasn't a big deal, but it was just one thing that I didn't, I didn't want to do. So the end of chapter four uh, ends when they grab the sword and they have the sword uh, it transforms one of them. I, I didn't do such a radical transformation. I basically gave a bunch of, you know, changes to the character. I didn't want the character to be completely obliterated. So I had like the character just sort of get elevated up to this, this sort of, of angelhood. And it went to like a, um, you know, a, a chaotic neutral half-orc who had already been like carrying the shield of Gargoth and everything like that. But before the shield of Gargoth, before he picked up the blade and before it transformed him, Gargoth said, strike the shield with the sword and he did and that released gargoth and now the players are like oh my god there's an arch we just released another arch devil and they're like yeah but we know there has to be an arch devil to this and we don't want it to be zario so gargoth is like thanks very much i gotta go have a meeting with bell and gargoth went and flew out and killed a bunch of gnolls and killed inigu and then flew off and 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 killed bell uh turned bell uh, killed bell and then resurrected him as a lemur and then as an imp and now bell is an imp that is serving gargoth i thought that was kind of a fun twist Chapter five is the conclusion of the overall adventure. And it's a strange chapter in the book because it it has some events that take place. But a big piece of the chapter is basically saying like, there's a lot of loose ends that can occur in this adventure and you need to figure out what could potentially happen. Uh, there's many different actors who can happen here. Do you fall to Zariel? Are you defeated by Zariel? Is Zariel defeated? Uh, where's Gargoth? Uh, does Bell become the new archdevil? Does he not? Uh, what happens with Tiamat? There's all of these things. It's a chapter worth reading because there's so many different options. But it's not really a chapter you, you run. 
you can. Uh, the second half of, of the chapter uh, talks a lot about gives you a lot of events that you can run as sort of the end of it. I I didn't run it that way. There's this whole like the end game in El Terrell, right? And it has a bunch of events at the River's Edge, the Field of Flames, the showdown with Zariel. So there's definitely like a series of encounters, but they're pretty quick. And I ended up running it very differently from this. So I knew once they got the sort of Zariel, I was like, I want, I want to be done, right? We've, we've had our fun in Avernus. It's time to end. They had the sword. Uh, so when they left and they got in their um, infernal war machine, which, which they referred to as the death scort, they started riding across the side. And all of a sudden, a lance of lava smashes into the death scort and blows it up. Uh, and their whole death scort is destroyed. Uh, the characters are thrown asunder. They get up and three nightmares come down with three hell knight, uh, hell rider generals. Um, Olanthius, um, Haruman and Gideon Lightward. Gideon Lightward being a general a vampire. So he had a death knight, a hell knight, and a vampire uh, riding in with two bone devil guards as well. Really tough fight, way above the deadly range of encounters. And yet my players did very well and fought them. Uh, I held back a little bit on things like the Hellfire Orb, but he did fire off the equivalent of a Hellfire Orb. They had so many ways to knock these guys down and to, and to limit their... Uh, abilities to attack and everything else that even though it was like three challenge rating 11 to 13 monsters plus three nightmares which really don't count because they're pretty they're very low challenge rating and a couple of um bone devils turned out to be just about right they were you know multiple characters dropped to zero they were really worried they were going to lose but they still defeated it and one thing they did at the last minute is they managed to convince Olanthius that their path was the right path and Olanthius ended up being the one to kill um Haramon and uh and then said kill me you know told that said to them hey you can use our nightmares they they had like little nightmare uh, uh figurines and they could use the nightmare figurines to get to uh the flying Azariel's flying fortress uh, at that point, the characters defeated the three Hell Knight generals. Uh, they, they could not get rid of Gideon. So Gideon is still out there somewhere because he's a vampire and he reforms his coffin. They don't even know where his coffin is, but he's, he's there somewhere. So um, they get on the nightmares. They ride the nightmares through the ethereal plane, right? The ethereal version of Avernus was really a fun thing to describe. They go roaring across the sky and then they get to, they kind of come out of the ethereal plane and they see Zariel's flying fortress hanging above the city of El Terrell, which is being drawn into the river Styx, right? And they only have like an hour to stop this from happening. Uh, they knew from Alanthius that there is an observation deck that they could go land on, and that's where they would be expected to go after recovering the sword. So they go to the landing deck, and there's Zariel. She's there with a couple of pit fiend guards and um, uh, Thavius Krieg in his new uh, Amanu form is there, and she's like, who the hell are you guys? And so that began a really tense roleplay scene where they were trying to convince her, you set up your own rescue and we have the key. And she's like, what are you talking about? And they explained to her, like, this is what happened. And they explained that she gave the sword to Yale and the sword was hidden away with the hope that it could be returned to her. And she's like, why would I do that? And she's like, they're like, you did. And you're, you know, this isn't you. And she looked at it and like Thavius is like, don't do it. And all the demons are going to attack. And they threw up a magic circle that hedged the demons out, but let Zariel in. 
And Zariel grabbed the blade and suddenly her angelic form shows up. Her halo of fire turns into a halo of radiant light. The demon, the devils are all destroyed. Favius Krieg is turned to cinder and the ship starts to fall. And she realizes, oh my God, what have I done? And she looks down and sees the city and she goes flying to the city. She teleports the characters to El Terrell. The characters appear at the church. They see Zariel whirling around at like light speed, cutting the chains. The chains are severed. A rift opens up in the sky. El Terrell rises up out of the ground, uh, up into the sky. They see all of their friends. They see Rhea Mantelmorn. They see uh, Oldar, Oldar Ravenguard. And they see uh, the, young, the young girl that they had saved. Uh, what was her name? Reese, I think. Something like that. Uh, the young girl that's in... Um, Fall of Elturel, the one, you know, she's all dirty and covered in Avernus dust, but she still has her rainbow scarf that she wears. And they see them all and they're all raised up and they all, Grace, that, thank you, Grace was her name. So they, 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 they see her and uh, one thing I forgot to do, uh, and I wish I had, is that Zariel can also resurrect all of the people who died in Elturel in Avernus because their souls are still swirling around the city because they have not yet gone into the river Styx. She can resurrect them all so that when they go up, the city is saved and, and most everybody is alive and, uh, and, and they, they return once again. Now, this was also a really good opportunity to bring in character things. So one thing I did is like I had each, for each character, I had sort of a thing that was tied to them. So for one character, she had been carrying around a, uh, a rod of the Pack Keeper. She was a celestial warlock. And she had a rod of the Pack Keeper that was sort of holding the soul of the companion in it. And she formed a new church of the companion. And the companion restored up in the sky above Elturel. Only now it's a golden light. And her job was to maintain the companion and hunt vampires, which was pretty cool. Uh, she also, so and for each character, another one became the sage of the hell riders, uh, and, and also like spent a lot of time in Candlekeep kind of researching what happened. And he said, I'm going to basically look for every group that uses the word hell in their name and see if they're actually secretly demons or devils. Uh, one of the others, the one who had taken the sword, he just kind of like nodded his head and said, well, I've now done more good than harm and then walked off. And that was the last anybody ever saw of him again, which is really cool. Very, very, you know, uh, man with no name. Um, so each of the characters uh, had their own bit of story. And then I said, like, one year later, what happens? And so they all described what their character was like in El Terrell or out of El Terrell one year after the events of restoring El Terrell. And it was a really fun conclusion. My, my wife, who never gives me a 10 out of 10 on any game I've ever run, said, this is pretty close to a 10 out of 10. And I'm like, great, you know? And it really comes to like, just give them what they want. Like, you know, the time for interesting twists isn't at the end of the story. The end of the story is the time to give the players what they want from the story. It's worth asking them, what are your hopes and dreams for this campaign? And then listen, and then give it to them. Right. And you don't have to give it to them exactly the way it is, but you want to give them enough that they feel like, yeah. So like one of them was offered a job to join Mahadi's uh, wandering emporium as a permanent uh, singer. And she's like, no, but I wouldn't mind coming there and doing some guest appearances. And so she would occasionally go to the wandering emporium and do guest, you know, song, you know, sing you know, guest, guest, uh, uh, guest appearances. And that worked really well. So I highly recommend doing that and do like the one after they do the event, do a one year later montage. One of my favorite ways to end a campaign is the one year later montage. One year after the events of the campaign, tell us where your character is. Tell us what they're doing. Don't call on people. Instead say, who would like to tell me what their character did one year later? And somebody will usually have an idea. You can also warn them that you're going to do it so that they have some thoughts about where they want their character to be. Um, and that they, they can have something prepared. 
really great. F so much fun. And I just, I love, like, talk about, like, being fans of the characters and watching where it goes. I never have any idea what they're going to do. And I almost always love it. It's just, it's great stuff. So, so that is how I ended uh, chapter five. And again, chapter five, and it's written this way, so many different potential endings. But an easy one is you save Zariel and you save Elturel and you return to you know, the plane. From, re from a redemption arc, I was very happy with the redemption arc and it, it worked really well. So that is really chapter five. Uh, I thought I would spend a little bit of time now, now that I've run it and it's fresh in my mind, I just finished it, I've been thinking a lot about it. What are my overall thoughts on uh, Descent into Avernus? So... Uh, one is I ran it pretty quickly. Uh, I ran this. This was a game that I ran every other week. So for about three hours a session, two and a half to three hours a session. Uh, and I and we were able to finish it in 16 sessions. And I would say that most of this was because I, I just ran what needed to be run and nothing else. I didn't run a lot of side quests. Uh, I, I, I really ran an abbreviated version of chapter three. So they, they, they did maybe four or five locations of the 24 potential locations in chapter three. They could have done more, but because I did these sort of branching paths, they skipped a lot of stuff. So I, I actually more than like four or five, because they did go to, they visited a bunch of places, but they didn't really do encounters in a bunch of places. So it was like six or seven of them. But I would say that like I, I abbreviated a lot of the time um, by, by condensing chapter three and really just stick into the, you know, stick into the basics. So I do feel like I fully played that adventure, but I also feel like I was able to fully play it in, uh, 16 sessions. They ended at roughly level 12. They would have been level 12 had we leveled them. They were level 11 going into the final session. So I also leveled them really quickly. The first few sessions, they leveled every session. And then later they would level about every other session. And that got them to about 11th level uh, by the time they were ready to face the, the final fight for them was facing three uh, Hellrider generals uh, and the two Bone Devils. That was really the big final fight. And the cool bit there is like there wasn't one boss to fight, right? They didn't they didn't gank one boss. Instead, they uh, got to uh, hit multiple multiple groups. So that was one thing is that that, that sort of condensed. I would say condensed, not abbreviated, because I didn't really cut anything, but it was pretty pretty tight. Um, it is an adventure that really requires you to understand your own theme. Uh, I I I would say it is a flawed adventure. Um, I'll just say it. It's a flawed adventure and it's flawed for a few in, in probably a few ways. Uh, one is, and I've said this before in all these videos, that's why I reinforce it. If you look at the tips, the tips are hitting this dead on, um, is that it, it, it doesn't understand its own theme. So if you run the adventure as written, you're, you start off with the, uh, getting conscripted by the uh, Flaming Fist mercenaries to get rid of the cult of the dead three. When you find out that a city hundreds of miles away fell into hell, what do you care? Why would you go there? So there's this, and I've heard DMs who are like, getting my players to go back into hell was really hard because there was no motivation to do it. So the fact is the, the the adventure lacks the motivation right in the beginning. And it also lacks that central theme. Is it redemption or is it fall from grace? Which one of these themes do you want? And then adventure bounces back and forth. And you really need one, right? You need like one theme and stick to it. And it really doesn't do that. So I think it's fixable. I've, I've, I think, I, I look, I had a great time running it. And, and, I, and I didn't make significant changes. So uh, I, I did make significant changes, but I didn't have to like rewrite the whole thing. It was really just how I ran the material that was there and adding on a few supplements. Uh, so one other, so, so it's definitely an adventure that requires a lot of work from a DM. And I'll talk more about like where it ranks among adventures in that regard. There are adventures that it helps if you make some changes or there are ones, 
you're always going to make changes to a published adventure. Do you need to, or do you want to is really the question. And how much do you need to do to make something a, a really solid adventure? That's, that's a trick. This one requires a fair, a bit, a fair bit of work uh, to make into a solid adventure. One thing occurred to me is that while the Baldur's Gate adventure doesn't really work as a lead-in to the Avernus side of this, it actually could work really well as a standalone adventure. It's almost like the dark side of Waterdeep Dragon Heist. In Waterdeep Dragon Heist, you're in a nice city. You're trying to find out where this lost gold is. You're dealing with all these factions, and and yet there's still a lot of really good people there. Like, um, you know, the the, the Black Staff is good, and and uh, the ruler of Waterdeep are really good. You know, it's a it's a nice city, right? But then you have the flip side, which is Baldur's Gate, which is a you know not a nice city. I was gonna say dirty words, and. Uh, there you've got murder in the streets and you've got cultists that are murdering people and you've got, you know, darkness that were found underneath. You got the whole, the shield, right? The, the shield of the hidden Lord, which is kind of corrupting the whole place. You've got a murderous leader of the, uh, uh, of the, the four Dukes, right? The high Duke is a murderer, a murderer. And if you were just running that part that you got conscripted by the flaming first mercenaries, and it leads to you discovering that the, uh, leader of Baldur's Gate is actually a cultist, you know, and needs to be killed. That's a fun adventure on its own. And you don't have to ever tie it to Avernus, right? You can have Avernus little seeds here and there. But the main thing is like taking down a corrupt leader from a city. And that on its own is kind of a fun adventure. And it's about the same size as Waterdeep Dragon Heist would be. You know, it's about a level one to five adventure. And I think it would actually run pretty well that way. So if you didn't want to run Avernus, but you did want to run like a corrupt city adventure, the Baldur's Gate part of Baldur's Gate Descent and Avernus can run well on its own. I think I didn't run it that way, but having run it, I think it could work that way. So do I recommend it? Uh, I'm not going to give a binary yes or no answer. I'm going to approach it from two angles. Uh, one is if you were going to a bookstore and you saw a list of the 12 adventures sitting there, uh, which one would I recommend ahead of it? And I have the answer is most of them. Uh, I think the only adventure that I think you could, you know, that 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 compares to this one is they're both right at the end, and that's Princes Princes of the Apocalypse, which also needs some major structural problems. I would even argue that Princes probably requires less work to wrangle into a solid adventure than Descent into Avernus does, but it's not as thematically interesting, I don't think. And it has some big problems too. It's got the whole dwarven delegation and it's this these major threads that sort of get lost. That said, like I've run Princes a couple of times and I still like it. And you know, so even though this would probably be the second to last adventure I would recommend somebody play, that doesn't mean it's not a good adventure because they're all pretty good. And the other reason I would say that I do recommend it is from the standpoint of the amount of resources that went into make it compared to how much you have to pay for it. So I was talking before about like, how much would you have to pay to make your own Big Mac from scratch? And the answer is you probably couldn't do it. But the, you know, because there's this global infrastructure in place, we're able to buy a Big Mac for like three bucks. But if you were to try to make your own Big Mac, it would be thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. And you'd have to go all over the world, right? Um, the same is kind of true with this book. Think about how much it costs to make that book. The art, the editing, the design, the layout, the covers, you know, all the designers that are involved, all the editing that was involved, all that, the story concept stuff that was involved. A lot of money went in to make that book. And you're able to get that for 50 bucks. Now, just because a lot of money went in doesn't mean it's still worth it because you, you, you know, sunk cost is sunk cost. But you get a lot. You get a lot of interesting maps. You get a lot of cool story scenes. The artwork is beautiful. Uh, the overall theme of the adventure is pretty cool, right? So if you're willing to do the work, 
if you recognize the fact that as a DM, you're going to have to rebuild good chunks of this thing in order to wrangle it into a good adventure, it's, it's definitely worth the money. Uh, I am disappointed that you have to do so much work in my opinion. And again, it's, you know, this is my opinion. And I, I know there are people who say, no, it actually runs perfectly fine as is. That's great. But I've talked to a lot of DMs who think that it isn't. It's not just me. Lots of people have had uh, problems with this adventure. And uh, for the, uh, for many of the same reasons, chapter three feels like a railroad. It feels like a bunch of fetch quests. And why would, and, and the characters are totally not motivated to do it because they don't really care about Elsewhere in the first place. So you can fix it. But it requires some work. So do I recommend it? it I'm going to have to waffle and say it depends. You get a lot for your money, but it does require work if you're going to wrangle into an adventure. So I don't know if that helps. Um, there are a bunch of useful supplements uh, that you can pick up that really help make this adventure better. The big one, which I've talked about in every single episode that I've talked about in this, in the, for this uh, game, is uh, Fall of Elturel. Uh, these are all, this is available on the DMs Guild, uh, written by Anthony Joyce and Justice Armand. It's five bucks and it's a wonderful introduction. I've already talked about it. I really couldn't recommend it enough. Uh, another one is Encounters in Avernus, which is written by a whole slew of uh, DM uh, Guild adepts. And it has a whole bunch of different encounters that you can drop in. I didn't use this one myself as much, but it was nice. If you want to expand Avernus, uh, you, you can't go wrong by, by looking at the uh, encounters in Avernus books. Um, the Candlekeep Companion is kind of an Avernus book. Uh, it's sort of a standalone book, too, that really, really expands Candlekeep. Like, Candlekeep is giving very little... Uh, uh, very little screen time in Descent to Davernus, and it's such a fantastic place. If you want to expand Candlekeep, you can. And Empty uh, Black, one of the authors of um, Descent to Avernus, has sort of an, a, a director's cut of Descent to Avernus in this book. So uh, it's expensive at 15 bucks. I shouldn't say it's expensive because my books are 15 bucks, but it's a uh, it's worth it. It's a really good book. Beautiful artwork. Ed Greenwood wrote parts of it. Uh, it's got uh, all new art that was commissioned for it. Really, really good book. I highly recommend it. It's a good book just if you're a Forgotten Realms nerd at all. It's a good book, but it also works into Descent and Navinus. Abyssal, Abyssal Incursions was written by James Intercasso. This is like five encounters that you can sort of drop into your Avernus game wherever you want. They fit in a lot of, a, a lot of good, a lot of different places. Uh, four box, really good, really good supplement. Uh, one that I highly recommend. Uh, and then another one, which is very popular. I didn't use it, but I, I but I recommend it here. Um, is the Alexandrian remix of Descent into Avernus. It is a great big, like I'm trying to make things easy by like, here are seven tips that can make things a little better. He has gone in so much more depth of like ways to kind of rework Descent into Avernus into something else. Uh, I, I did not follow it. I'll be honest. I didn't even really read all of these, but I've heard so many good things about him that I that I can't not recommend him. Uh, Justin Alexander uh, is a fantastic writer. Uh, I, I love his blog. I read it heavily. So I am confident that what you see here are, are really good, uh, really good tips for Avernus. It's probably worth a read, but it's pretty in depth. It's not very lazy. So... That is my final look at Descent into Avernus. Uh, I hope you found these videos useful. Uh, I did have fun playing it. I had, a, as always, whenever I'm running a D&D adventure, I'm having a great time being creative with my, with my family and friends, and I cannot be uh, happier than I am in moments like that. Uh, I did enjoy this adventure, but it does take some work. Uh, I put these videos together to hopefully help you get the most out of this adventure if you're running it yourself. So I hope you enjoyed this video and uh, I want to thank you very much. So go ahead and get out there and play some D&D. &D. Thank you very much.